All right. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to say it. It is too cold outside. Uh, I almost didn't show up this morning, so um, I, don't, I, was, I almost texted somebody and said, you're up. I don't know what to tell you, but I, just, I can't leave my house this morning. My Bahamian blood is not used to this. Um, at the same time, I'm thankful for it. It's a nice change, but I'm just going to say it's too cold for me this morning. Uh, if you are new around here or online, I want to introduce myself. My name is Kenny. I have the privilege of being the pastor here at Mission Way. And um, we are in a series, uh, really a journey through the book of Matthew that we're breaking up into different series, different sections. And the section of Matthew that we're in now, we're calling the early years because this is the time between the birth of Jesus and the start of his public ministry. We have all this uh, content about Jesus and who he is. Um, We have a few stories as we've already looked at his baptism and today his temptation. Um, But really, one of the things that you see uh, throughout the timeline of these early years, as you see these strong connections between Jesus and Israel. So in Matthew chapter 2, we saw in verse 15, Matthew quotes from the prophet uh, Hosea when uh, God said through Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. And it's really from that moment all the way up until the temptation of Jesus that you continue to see these parallels. So just a few of those. First of all, that statement itself we already looked at, out of Egypt I called my son. The nation of Israel in the book of Exodus we see come out of Egypt. God leads them out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus himself had to flee to Egypt with his family as a young boy from Herod. And then they leave Egypt to come back to Jerusalem as well. And then we see uh, the Israelites pass through the Red Sea. We we know the story, many of us know the story of God through Moses parting the Red Sea and, and the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea, passing through the waters of the Red Sea. Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. And after they pass through the Red Sea, God confirms his covenant with Israel and declares his love for the nation of Israel. And we see God declare at the baptism of Jesus his love for Jesus as well, the Father's love for the Son. And then today, we see Jesus go into the wilderness, which again, we know the Israelites did as well. The Israelites, after crossing the Red Sea, would spend 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus would spend 40 days fasting In the wilderness. So there's these strong connections where you see Jesus came to be the true Israel, the true Son of God, to come and save his people from their sins. But before we dive into our passage this morning, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about the temptation of Jesus. Um, There's a couple general questions about this passage that I want to address and answer because we won't naturally get to them as we move through. But there's a few things that people point out that I wanted to answer as we approach the passage of the temptation of Jesus. One of those is the fact that if you look in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see the account of the temptation of Jesus. Matthew and Mark give us a lot of details. Excuse me, Matthew and Luke give us a lot of details. Mark is kind of short with his account of it. But if you compare Matthew and Luke's account, they talk about the same temptations, but they're in a different order. And there are some people who go, okay, so who's right? What's the right order here? And one of the things, and this is a general principle as we move through the Gospel of Matthew that that will come up at times. When these gospel writers were writing the account of Jesus, they were not as concerned about chronological order as we often are. When we write history, we want to make sure that we get things just right in the timeline and the order that they happen. The gospel writers were not always concerned about that because they had a purpose in their writing. One of Matthew's main purposes is to show us how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And so he's going to structure his account in a way that helps him best tell that story. And so it's not a contradiction, it's not an error on the part of Matthew or Luke, it's just a matter of their emphasis and what they wanted to talk about. Another question that comes up with this temptation is, did this this actually happen? Was this an actual physical event? Because as we'll read the story, you'll see Satan comes to tempt Jesus, 
And they go from the wilderness to the temple to this place where they can see all the kingdoms of the earth and you wonder, is this actually happening or not? And there's some differing opinions about this, but it seems obvious to me at least that if Satan could take Jesus to a place where they would see all the kingdoms of the earth, that this is probably, at least portions of it, were probably more of a vision. It actually happened, the temptation actually occurred, but maybe there were portions of it that were in a vision where Satan was tempting Jesus. And I don't think we can really be dogmatic in either case about that. What's important is that Jesus was actually tempted by Satan and actually overcame the temptation. That's what's most important here. And the last question, and this is maybe one of the most important questions as we approach this passage, is could Jesus have sinned? Could Jesus have sinned? So we know that he was tempted. We know that he was without sin. Those are things that we have to agree on in order for us to truly hold to Jesus being who he says he is. That he actually was tempted as we are, yet without sin. But the question is asked, was it even possible for Jesus to sin? He's fully God, and it's impossible for God to sin, yet he's fully man, and we know that we as humans sin all the time. So I had a little bit of fun with this this week, and I decided to frustrate a lot of my friends and fellow pastors, and so I sent out a poll. And what I did was I said, listen, I'm gonna ask you a question, but all I want is yes or no. And I, said, and I asked the question, could Jesus have sinned, yes or no? And uh, not one person that I texted only gave me a yes or no answer, by the way, because they had to, they had to expound on it. And I understand that, that desire. Now, I lean towards no, um, because I believe that Jesus was actually tempted externally. But I believe there's a difference between the external temptation that is real and the internal temptation that we have with our own sinful desires. I don't believe Jesus had that, those same sinful desires inside of himself. I believe he was truly man, truly human, yet incapable of sin, yet truly tempted and overcame that temptation. Now again, I don't think that's something that you have to be dogmatic about. Um, again, what we have to agree on in order to be true biblical Christians is that Jesus did not sin. Whether he could have or could not have, he did not and he will not sin. And so as we look at his temptation, we can learn a lot about the character of Jesus. We learn a lot about who he is. We learn a lot more that would drive us to worship him, but we also learn and we see an example of what we need to do when we face temptation. And so as we look at the story of the temptation of Jesus, yes, we're learning about who he is, but we're also beginning to learn a little bit about ourselves and how we need to battle temptation as well. And so before we get into the three temptations, let's, let's set up the scene the way that Matthew does. It's in Matthew chapter four, as I mentioned. I'm not sure I mentioned that. If I did not, it's in Matthew chapter four, verses one through 11. Matthew starts this way. This is right after the baptism of Jesus. Matthew says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Which is one of those does statements of the Bible, by the way. I don't know if you've seen these commercials for, for uh, medications that say, you know, don't take Tylenol if you're allergic to Tylenol, right? And you kind of go, of, co- of course, like I get it. He was, he was hungry, of course he was hungry after 40 days. Now, this kind of leads to a question though. Did this actually happen? Because that seems impossible to us that Jesus would go 40 days fasting. And so let me say something up front that I've been saying a lot for the last two years. I am not a doctor, I'm a pastor. But in my limited amount of research, I did find that there are cases of people and there's, there's evidence to suggest that humans can live without food, with water, without food for anywhere from 20 to 60 days, give or take that timeline not, is not perfect. 
Obviously, you're going to suffer some immense physical uh, challenges because of that, but it is absolutely possible to go 40 days without food, yet having water. And we see in Luke's account, Luke is very specific and says uh, he ate nothing, but doesn't say he drank nothing. Matthew's very specific. I think one of the reasons he said he was hungry is because he's not including the fact that he was thirsty because he partook of water. And so this fast, I believe, actually did take place. But back to our focus of setting up the scene here. Remember, Jesus has just been baptized. And in the baptism, we see the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus and the Father declare, this is my beloved Son. And now the Spirit, after this great event, leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. It's an important distinction that Jesus was not tempted by the Holy Spirit or the Father. He was tempted by the devil. Yet, the Spirit led him, to, led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It was part of God's plan for Jesus to be tempted. Jesus fasted. For 40 days during this temptation, it was, a temp- it, was, it was for him to be tempted, but also that word can also mean tested. There was a testing that took place here for Jesus. And there's a few ties that we see. I already mentioned the 40 days ties to the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the wilderness being tested as well. There's a tie to Moses because Moses, when he went up on the mountain to receive the law of God, he also fasted for 40 days, receiving the law from the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 9. But I think there's also an allusion here to that very first promise in Genesis chapter three, where God says to Satan, there will be enmity between you and the offspring of the woman. And we know, we've talked about this many times, the offspring would ultimately be Christ. So God is telling Satan in Genesis 3.15, there's gonna be enmity between your offspring and his offspring. We see pieces of this enmity between Jesus and Satan here in the temptation. And in his temptation, Jesus was setting himself up as the second and final Adam. We know and believe that when Adam sinned, death and sin spread to all mankind. And when Jesus came to fulfill righteousness, now we have life in Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so Jesus in this temptation is fulfilling this in part. It'd be completed in its fulfillment when he went to the cross and fulfilled God's plan for salvation. But while Adam failed in the paradise of Eden, Jesus succeeded while suffering in the wilderness. You think about that. Adam was surrounded by perfection and paradise. Had everything he could have ever wanted. There was no sin, there was no suffering in the world. And in those circumstances, Adam still failed. And yet Jesus, in the wilderness, hungry for 40 days, succeeded. I I have a hard time going just a few hours without food, without snapping on my family, right? That's difficult for us. And there was so much more going on here as we'll see in the temptation of Jesus and he succeeded, he conquered, he won the battle. So let's look at each of the three temptations. So um, there are three, so we have three points to, to, to focus on the three temptations and what they represent. Let's go to verse three of Matthew chapter four. Matthew says, and the tempter, Satan, came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The focus of temptation number one is trusting God's provision. That's that's really what is happening here. Satan is tempting Jesus to to stop trusting in God's provision. Let's talk about that. Um, 
By the way, for those of you that appreciate things like this, uh, I don't often do this, but I have alliterated my points this morning. Uh, most of the time, I just kind of go through my points, but I got an alliteration this morning. I did a little bit of effort to do that for, for those who appreciate that. But right off the bat, we see Satan's strategy. He says, if you are the son of God. Now think back to the baptism of Jesus. What was the last thing that we see recorded that Jesus heard? The father saying to him, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. And Satan right off the bat comes in and says, if you are the son of God, why are you hungry? If, if you're the son of God, what's the deal? 40 days without food? Really? Is that, is that how a father would treat his son? I think that both Satan and Jesus know that Jesus is the son of God. I don't think Satan is necessarily saying, I don't believe you're the son of God, I need you to prove it to me. I don't believe that's what's going on here. I think Satan is saying, you, you just need to prove it to me because what I'm seeing here, it does, you don't look like much of the son of God in this circumstance. Tempting Jesus to prove his sonship. In other words, Satan seems to be saying to Jesus, this is no way for the son of God to live. And this is one of the numerous places where I'm reminded that I can never live up to Jesus' example. Because I, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't help but being able to be sarcastic in this moment to Satan, right? Like Satan comes and says, hey, just turn the stones to bread. I'd be like, Satan, really? I hadn't thought of that in the last 40 days. Like I, that idea never occurred to me that I should get food, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. He quickly does what he does in every single one of the temptation. He goes to the scripture. And in every temptation, Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. And here, in order for us to really understand Jesus' response, I think it's important for us to go to the verse that he quotes from in Deuteronomy chapter eight. Jesus quoted the second part of this verse, so let's read the whole verse. This is, again, in context here, what's happening is God is speaking to the nation of Israel through Moses. It says, and he humbled you and let you hunger. God let the people of Israel hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that, and here it is, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus was led into the wilderness for testing. And a part of that test included this fast, because again, he came to, su to succeed where Israel failed. Israel in their hunger did not trust the Lord for provision. Even when, when God provided manna for the Israelites, manna from heaven, they still didn't trust him to provide for them. They still wanted more. They wanted to go outside of God's provision to, to satisfy their desires and their needs. And, and here's the question, was it really, would it really have been so wrong for Jesus to have done this, what Satan is suggesting? I mean, it's not as if Satan is tempting Jesus to be a glutton. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. All he would be doing is simply satisfying his hunger. As the son of God, he would have every right to do that. So the sin is not, you should get something to eat. The sin would be not trusting the Lord's provision. God's plan was for Jesus to be tested and for Jesus to trust the Father's provision. Here's what Jesus was teaching us, I believe, in this. Jesus was showing us that when we are lacking what we think we need most, we must trust the Lord to provide for us and not go outside of his will to get what we think we need. When we are lacking what we think we need most, we trust the Lord. I mean, it, it's easy to argue that Jesus needed food. That's, that's an obvious point. But the question is, was he going to trust the Father's provision 
Or was he going to go and, and seek out other means to get what he thought he needed most? Satan wanted Jesus to doubt God's love for him based on his lack of bread. But Jesus recognized that we don't measure God's love by our circumstances. We don't measure God's love for us by our lack or by our abundance. We measure God's love for us by his word that he's already declared his love. He's already declared that he will provide for us and we trust him at all times because he's never failed. And yes, embedded in this statement is the truth. This, is, it's, this passage is often taught as if what Jesus is ultimately saying is that spiritual food is more important than physical food. And I think that's, that's a part of what's happening here. I mean, we see passages like Matthew 6, seek, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, your food, your clothing, all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom and then everything you need will be added to you. Or 1 Timothy 4, 8, Paul says to Timothy, while body, bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Physical health is important. But godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So yes, man shall not live by bread alone is a statement that says your spiritual food is more important even than your physical food because if you seek the kingdom of God first, God will provide the things that you need. But don't miss the significance here either that Jesus, who declared himself to be the bread of life, was lacking in bread so that he may fulfill the Father's plan and he may fill us with what we need most. He went through this testing so that he could trust the Father's provision, give us an example in that, but also so that he may continue to go on the journey of our salvation to fill us up. Both Adam and the Israelites failed this test. Adam, in the Garden of Eden, had everything he wanted, and yet he went after the forbidden fruit because he thought, he thought, I, that, I need that. It, it, he, it, he desired the fruit. And he didn't trust God's provision and everything else he had in Eden. The Israelites had manna given to them. They didn't trust God's provision. They wanted more. They wanted to go back to the food in Egypt. They preferred to go back into slavery in Egypt so they could enjoy the comforts of Egypt versus trusting God's provision in the wilderness. They failed. Jesus came and he succeeded because he said in John 4, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That is our sustenance. That is what sustains us. That is what satisfies our deepest longings is to do the will of the Father. And that's what Jesus is showing us, to trust God's provision even when we're lacking what we think we need most. And so the obvious questions are on point number one, do you trust God's provision like Jesus did? Or, when need comes, and, and this can be anything, we're not just talking about physical needs, we're not just talking about lack of food, whatever that need is, what is, just think about what is your greatest perceived need in your life? The thing that you don't have or you don't have enough of that you think you, you desperately need more of. The question is, do you trust God to provide or not? And he doesn't always, very often, matter of fact, he does not provide in the ways that we think we need because he knows our needs better than we do. Do you trust that? Or are you tempted to go outside of God's will, to step outside of the way that God has called you to live in order to get the thing that you think you need most? Do you trust God's provision or not? Ask it this way. Is God's goodness, is God's love in your mind tied to the things that he gives you? Or is his goodness simply tied to him alone, his character? 
the fact that he is good? Do you trust that he's good even when you lack what you think you need most? Jesus showed us how to do that by reminding us that we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that's not Jesus saying, hey, when you're hungry, just read your Bible and you won't be hungry anymore. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I don't base my trust in the Lord on what I have and don't have. I based it on his declared word that he loves me and he will provide. And I trust that. So Satan recognizes, it seems, that he lost that battle. And so he goes on to the next one. That was temptation number one. Let's move on to the second one, starting in verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, there's that statement again, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the focus of temptation number two is testing God's promises. Temptation number one was all about trusting God's provision. Temptation number two is about testing God's promises. Now, Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. And uh, to give you a picture of what this is like, the pinnacle of the temple was the southeast corner of the temple, and it was about 300 feet off the ground, which if you can't imagine that, maybe you can imagine the Prudential building downtown Jacksonville. That's about 300 feet tall as well. So Jesus is standing on the pinnacle of the temple with Satan, and Satan says to Jesus, hey, all right, you just quoted scripture. I can do that too. And Satan goes and he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. And he says, hey, in, in scripture it says that God's not going to let your foot strike a stone. He will command the angels to protect you. So prove it. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and let's watch the angels protect you. Psalm 91 was a messianic psalm. It was, it was referencing Jesus. And so Satan is saying, if you're the Messiah, if you're the son of God, and this promise is true, prove it. Throw yourself off the temple. Friendly reminder here, by the way, this is not the point, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Uh, quoting scripture does not make you right. Satan knows scripture, and he uses it. Matter of fact, Satan's best lies are mixed with some truth. Just because somebody is quoting scripture, just because you know scripture and you can quote it, in your life does not necessarily mean you're using it in the right way. It doesn't mean you are applying scripture correctly. So Satan, yes, quotes from Psalm 91, but he gives a half truth. He misapplies these verses and he says, okay, so if this means that God will protect you, then let's prove it. And you just throw yourself off the temple. And so Jesus once again turns rightly to scripture and he goes again to Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 16 to resist Satan. And he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And here's an important principle, by the way, just before we move on in this point. All throughout his temptation, Jesus reminds us to wield the sword of the Spirit in temptation. If you're going to fight against temptation, you must know how to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is, as we saw in our Armor of God series, the Word of God. If you cannot rightly divide the Word of God, you will not be able to adequately stand against Satan's temptations in your life. Now, in this one specifically, I always thought that what Jesus is saying to Satan is, Satan, don't put me to the test, right? Because Satan says, throw yourself off the temple. Jesus quotes the scripture, don't put the Lord your God to the test. That could have very well applied to Jesus. And I thought Jesus was saying, hey, Satan, don't test me, right? Don't put me to the test here. And certainly that implication can be drawn, but Jesus is, what Jesus is doing is he's telling Satan why he will not throw himself off the temple. Because 
To throw himself off the temple for the angels to save him would have been putting the father to the test. And it was commanded all throughout scripture, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't take the promises of God and think this is your license to do whatever you want and God's going to fulfill his promises to you because in order to receive the promises of God, we still need to walk in the law of God. We need to walk in his ways to receive his promises. The good news for us is that though we cannot walk in his ways perfectly, that's why we're united to Christ. He fulfilled the law of God so that all the promises of God are yes in Christ toward us. But in order for Jesus to be able to to walk in the promises of the Father, he had to walk in obedience to the Father. Jesus is also doing something. He's giving us an important Bible study principle. This is something that we need to know if we're gonna study our Bibles correctly. So Satan quotes scripture to Jesus and Jesus goes to scripture to show Satan how he was wrong. He teaches us a very important principle. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The principle is scripture interprets scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. And what I mean by that is people do this all the time. They take a verse of the Bible and they say, this verse justifies my point. This verse justifies my lifestyle. It justifies how I wanna live. It justifies how I'm treating you because of this one verse. Forgetting all the other verses that need to be taken into account to show what that verse actually truly means. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, Satan, yes, Psalm 91 does say that he will protect me. But the word of God also says, don't put the Lord your God to the test and throwing myself off the pinnacle of the temple would be putting God to the test. And scripture must interpret scripture. Yes, God, Jesus himself actually declared in Matthew 26, he says, do you not think that I can appeal, or he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Satan was partly right. Jesus could have done that. He could have appealed to the Father for the angels to protect him. But it was also true that Jesus had submitted himself to obedience to the Father's will. To throw himself off would have violated that will. And Jesus shows us that he cannot do that. And so here's the point for us then. We see Jesus do this. The application for us on point number two is, do you have the temptation to cherry pick scripture to suit your needs? I think we do this more than we'd like to admit. When we have some way that we want to live, when we have some way that we want to treat somebody, we want to withhold forgiveness from somebody, we want to walk in some sinful lifestyle, we're really good at finding a verse that somehow justifies what we're doing. And we're really good at reasoning in our own minds and with the people around us as to why we're right to do this thing. But if we're going to truly walk in righteousness, Scripture must interpret Scripture. We must have a complete understanding of the word of God to walk in holiness. The second application for us is, are you tempted at times to put God's promises to the test? Are you tempted at times to put God's promises to the test? Yes, God has promised to take care of us. But are you, are you at times tempted to walk outside of his will to test and see if he really will take care of you or not? Do you just simply trust and take God at his word or do you need proof? Because that's a part of what Satan's doing here as well. He says, if you're the son of God, then prove that the promises are true. And Jesus doesn't give in. Are you at times tempted to ask God to prove himself to you? To put him to the test? Say, God, if you really love me, if this is all really true, if you're really gonna take care of me, then I need you to do this. That's putting the Lord to the test. What Jesus shows us is that truly trusting in the promises of God 
means trusting, not putting him to the test, not stepping outside of his will to get what he has promised you, but trusting him completely. Again, Adam failed at this in the garden and the Israelites failed at this in the wilderness, but Jesus succeeded. And so Satan throws one final temptation toward Jesus. And we see this in verses eight through 10. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The focus of temptation number three is toying with God's plan. Toying with God's plan. And we'll talk about what I mean by that. This part of the account, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the reasons why I believe at least part of the temptation happened in some sort of a vision because it doesn't, it doesn't seem likely that there is a mountain that they went to, a physical mountain where they literally saw all the kingdoms of the earth. And so likely there's a form of a vision going on here. Now, Satan says to Jesus something that might make us question. He says to Jesus, all the kingdoms of the earth I'll give to you if you worship me. That seems backwards to us. What is, what, what is, how can Satan give anything to Jesus? Now, one of the things that we see all throughout scripture is that Satan is called the God of this world the prince of the power of the air. And we see taught in scripture that there is some authority that Satan has in this world. Yet, all of that authority is given to him by God. Satan doesn't wield that authority in and of himself. God has granted in ways that we don't fully comprehend some level of authority to Satan in this life. And, and here's the other thing we have to understand in this temptation. The temptation is not Satan saying to Jesus primarily, hey, do you want all the kingdoms of the world? I'll give them to you. What Satan is saying to Jesus is, hey, I know the plan for you to accomplish salvation is gonna be through much suffering. Why not forego all that suffering and let me give you the kingdoms of the earth now? Let me give you the glory now without the suffering. Because we see the promises given to the son in Psalm 2, 8. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is a promise to the son. This is a promise to the Messiah when he accomplishes the will of God. So what Satan is saying to Jesus is, you don't have to go through the suffering for that. I've been given authority to give you the kingdoms of the earth. Let me, let me do that. Let's do it without the suffering. Let's do it without the pain. But God's plan for Jesus to get to that place of exaltation was through suffering. We see that clearly in Isaiah 53. Talking of Jesus says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Satan was saying, do you really wanna suffer for what I can give you now? But in order for Jesus to fulfill the plan of the Father, the plan of salvation, it, it was required of him that he go through suffering. It was required of him that out of the anguish of his soul, he would see the salvation that he had purchased and be satisfied. Now, again, there's a part truth and what Satan is saying to Jesus in that I can give you the kingdoms of this earth. But there's also the lie that Satan only has dominion that God has temporarily given him. And what Satan is also partly trying to do is, and, and I think this is almost a last, last ditch effort on Satan's part, right? Like he's tried to tempt Jesus and Jesus is not giving in. And so he finally gets frustrated, shows his true colors and goes, just bow down and worship me already. And Satan knows that the moment that Jesus would have bowed down to worship him, he would have ceased to be God. 
Because God cannot worship anyone or anything. There's no one higher than God to be worshipped. For Jesus to do that would have meant he is not God. And while the stakes of our temptation are not nearly as high as the stakes of the temptation of Jesus, Satan comes to us in the same way. Promising to give us what we want if we'll just step outside of God's will. Promising to satisfy all of our desires and promising to allow us to avoid suffering and avoid pain if we would just step outside of the will of God. Which again is a lie because there may be temporary satisfaction that comes from our sin, but ultimately we don't avoid suffering in this life. And ultimately, even in our suffering, God is taking care of us, even in our suffering, God has a plan to make it all work together for the good of those who love him. And to step outside of God's plan to get what Satan is offering will only lead to death. It will not lead to life. It will not lead to the things that we ultimately want. How often do we give our allegiance away to other gods, other idols? We may not necessarily literally be tempted to bow down to Satan, but we are tempted to chase after his desires. We are tempted to put idols in the place of God. Whether it's the idol of comfort, that's a big one for a lot of us. Wanting to be comfortable, not wanting to suffer, not wanting any pain to come into our lives. And so we're willing to not trust the Lord. We're willing to step outside of God's ways for our life if we can just avoid some suffering. Maybe it's the idol of sexual desires. Wanting to pursue what God has forbidden because we want to fill our needs and our desires. Maybe it's the idol of success. Wanting so badly to be successful in this life and attain everything we can, get all of our dreams and our hopes and doing whatever it takes to get there. Maybe it's the idol of health. And these things are not necessarily bad things. Health obviously is a good thing. I'm not saying we should not go and get treatment for better health, but that can become an idol for us where we say God's not good if I'm not healthy. God's not loving if I, don't, if, if I don't get the good, clean bill of health. God can't be good if there's some, some virus spreading throughout our world, right? Because God wants us to be healthy and happy and we can place the idol of health there. Maybe it's the idol of happiness, not joy, but happiness, because happiness is based on our circumstances. Joy is something that's deep-seated within our hearts. Happiness comes and goes depending on what life is like. And we want so bad to just be happy all the time. I want to be in a good mood all the time. I don't want anything to happen that would disrupt my happiness. Depending on an emotion of happiness versus the deep joy that God gives us in the gospel. And Satan comes to us and he tries to offer us all of these things that we want if we would just step outside of what God has called us to. But I love what Jim Elliott said, a famous missionary who went to his really certain death to the tribe that would ultimately kill him. Before he went, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, which by the way, is everything in this life. Even our own life in and of itself We, in and of ourselves, cannot keep. It's the Lord that keeps us. It's the Lord that grants us eternal life. Jesus himself said, you try to save your life, you're gonna lose it. You wanna lose it for my sake in the gospels, you'll find it. 
Because what is it going to profit you if you gain the whole world, everything you've ever wanted, the health, the happiness, the success, all your desires? What does it profit you if you gain all of that, but you lose your soul? And the answer is obvious, nothing. Because what can you give in return for your soul? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jesus chose the path of suffering to buy back his children that they would never be lost again. And Jesus resisted the devil. And in that gives us another example. James tells us, resist the devil, he will flee from you. And we see that in verse 11, the final verse. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Don't miss the significance of that. Jesus resisted the temptation of Satan and then the angels came to minister to him, to give him what he needed, to satisfy his desires and the father took care of him in this way. He didn't step outside of God's plan. He didn't give in to the temptations of Satan. He simply trusted the Lord and he was provided for. He passed the test. There's so many things that we can take away from this as we begin to close this morning. But I wanna draw your attention to a truth as we're wrapping up that Carlton Wynn uh, said so eloquently, I think, talking about the temptation of Jesus, he said, sinners who necessarily and freely rebel need a Christ who necessarily and freely obeyed. We, in our sinful nature, by, by necessity, by default, by our nature, apart from Christ, we sin and we rebel. And we need a savior who necessarily and freely obeyed on our behalf. We talked a lot about this in the baptism of Jesus. He came to be our substitute, to live the life we could not live so that we could have his righteousness. And so this morning, what we wanna do in closing is we want to approach the Lord's table. We wanna take communion to celebrate this truth that Jesus came, he lived this perfect life that we could not have lived. He resisted the temptations of the devil. He trusted the Lord's provision. He became our perfect substitute so that when he went to the cross, he would bear our sin and pay for it in full and give us his righteousness. And that's what we celebrate. As we take the bread representing his body that was broken for us, he was bruised and he was crushed for our iniquities, for our sins. As we take the cup that represents his blood poured out for us, we remember that it's through his blood that we have forgiveness of sin. And it's in his blood that we have this new covenant, this new covenant where we trust in Jesus for salvation and God puts his spirit within us and seals us until he comes. And his promises to us are certain because his promises to Jesus are certain and we are united with Christ. And so we come to the Lord's table this morning to do a couple things. Number one, we come, as Hebrews 12 says, to consider him, to consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. As we look at Jesus, we see one who, in one of the greatest moments of testing in his earthly life, succeeded and endured. And we find, not in ourselves, but in his grace, the strength to endure as well. We find in his power at work within us the strength to not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus passed the test. And because you are in Christ, you have passed the test too. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so when Satan comes and he will to throw his fiery darts at you, 
to, to tempt you to, to doubt the goodness of the Lord, to tempt you to step outside of his ways and his plan for your life. Remember, in Christ you have been clothed with the armor of God to win the battle. And you have in your Savior an example of just how to do that, to wield the sword of the Spirit, to secure the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace and the shield of faith. And and you have this armor given to you to withstand. We come to the table, we examine ourselves. We see if there's any unconfessed sin and we confess it and we know that he's faithful and just to forgive. And we come to the table and we feed on his grace. I've said here before, and it's worth repeating, that in the Lord's Supper, we have a means of grace given to us. This is, in in many ways, yes, symbolic. But I also believe there is something supernatural that happens here, that God, in our partaking of the Lord's Supper, extends grace to us and sustains us to walk this life that he set before us. We remind ourselves as we take the bread that we don't live on bread alone. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, the bread of life. We remind ourselves that his promises are sure. His plan is perfect and he alone deserves our worship. And we remind ourselves as we come to the table and we, and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus for our sin. And then we think about our own sin. We, we, we're reminded sometimes of our failures, but we remember when we come to the table, as Hebrews tells us, that because he himself has suffered when tempted, He's able to help those who are being tempted. He he saved you from your sin, yes. But he also understands what it means to be tempted as you're tempted. And Paul tells us in Corinthians that in every temptation, he provides the way of escape. The way of escape is Christ, is trusting him. Trusting that even when you think you are lacking what you need most, God has not abandoned you. And we have the sacrifice of Jesus to prove that. If you ever think that God has forgotten about you, abandoned you, if you ever think that it might be worth it to step outside of God's plan and pursue after your sin, remember Jesus. Consider Jesus, who endured such pain, such suffering, so that you too may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning? As your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I just want you to reflect on what we've heard this morning. And then as we come to the table to reflect as well, but specifically, each time we come to the table, I I feel obligated to remind you that scripture is clear. We are not to come to the Lord's table with known unrepentant sin in our hearts. That we're not to come to the table without having confessed our sin. And so, if you have known unconfessed sin in your life, then my, my challenge to you, what, what scripture says is don't come to the table this morning. Spend your time confessing that sin, knowing that he's faithful to forgive. So that the next time that we come to the table, you can joy, joyfully partake. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so glad that you're here, but this table is specifically for believers in Christ. And my prayer is that as you watch us partake, that you would see the gospel on display. The Bible says that as we, as we take these elements, we proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim that Jesus Christ came to be the sinless one, 
to die on the cross and bear the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins so that we could trust in Jesus for salvation, that he rose again three days later, proving that he is who he says he is. And he calls us to turn from our sin and to trust in him. That's what we remember this morning as we come to the table. And so I'm gonna pray just by way of instruction. And I'll ask that you come after I pray and take the elements back to your seats and reflect and, and, and remember Jesus and whatever it is that you know that you need to do based on what you've heard from God's word today. And then you hold on to those, I'll come back up and we'll partake of them together and we'll sing one closing song before we dismiss this morning. But let me pray and then the tables will be open and we'll come to the table together this morning. God, thank you so much for the example of Jesus that we have. What a, what a powerful story. And we know that it's not just words on a page. It's not just some, some myth or some story we tell ourselves, but we know that, Jesus, you actually went into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. and You actually overcame those temptations. You were tempted as we are, yet without sin, and so you are a faithful and merciful high priest. Son of God, who passed through the heavens to come to this earth to suffer and die for us. God, I pray that as we take these elements this morning, that we would do what you told us to do, and that's to remember Jesus, to do this in remembrance of him. Remembering his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. God, I pray that you would be honored and lifted up in this time, and that above all, we would, we would consider Jesus this morning, and it would lead us to worship, and it would lead us to not grow weary well-doing. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The tables are open. You can come and take these elements back to your seats.